Today on episode number 294 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Martin Weller joins me to speak about his book, 25 Years of Ed Tech. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I've been admiring today's guest's work for a very long time, and I'm so excited to have him on the show today. Martin Weller is the director of the Open Education Research Hub and the director of the Global OER Graduate Network. Weller chaired the Open University's first major online e-learning course in 1999, which attracted 15,000 students and was the OU's first LMS director. His popular blog, edtechie.net, features his writings on aspects of educational technology. He's the author of The Battle for Open 2014 and The Digital Scholar 2011. Martin, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I am trying to decide if your book and this collection of blog posts should make me feel old or very informed, but I really enjoyed reading it and thinking about this period between 1994 and 2018. Could you share the significance of that range of dates? Yeah, I mean, partly it was accidental. So um, I'm the president of the Association for Learning Technology here in the UK, and it was their 25th anniversary in uh, 2018. So I thought, as you do with blogs, why don't I start a blog series like 25 years of EdTech, doing one one piece of EdTech per year. And and, and you start doing these things, you think, I'm not sure I'm going to finish, see it through (laughs) or anything. But actually, once I started doing it, it became a really interesting thing to explore. And I agree with you. It made me feel like, wow, hasn't a lot happened? And aren't I old? But also that it was actually a really useful exercise. And I think that period really covers if you like the the internet years of edtech and obviously there was there was stuff going on before then in terms of the internet but i think really by about 94 is when we sort of see it become really sort of mainstream so it really kind of captures that that kind of popular shift of education technology to really become almost synonymous with internet driven technologies one of the things you try to warn us about is that I had to learn a new word here. I'm not, I'm not even sure I'm going to pronounce it. So you quote someone named Carahan in 2014, and he or she is criticizing these ideas of birth myths, because what you decided for each year wasn't necessarily when that technology was born, as they say. And so I'll quote the author, birth myths are ahistorical. They tie in with a fellow Joseph centricism oh my goodness that is a mouthful of the concept of creation as a single act by a single person and then in in parentheses generally a man rather than a whole set of pre-existing conditions and preoccupations so for others who don't have quite the extensive vocabulary as this author and yourself would you explain what they're trying to say here that's david (laughs) kernahan who's here in the uk who wrote that and he's a very good blogger i think what he's trying to see there is we have these kind of myths, and it's not just in educational technology. You often see it in, particularly in the arts, of like the the sole creator, and it's often the, 
a male creator is kind of an act of like you know supreme creation it sort of comes from nowhere sort of divine inspiration kind of thing and actually creation is often much more kind of contextually based it's usually much more collaborative people are taking ideas from other people building on them and you see some of this a lot in the kind of ed tech stuff so you know the a lot of the mythology around people like Steve Jobs, I think, for instance, and those sort of people become very central to a lot of the the kind of narrative we have in Silicon Valley and educational technology. It's often very kind of like macho to be working, you know, 20 hours a day and those kind of things. And I think what I was trying to, to address in that was that partly in higher education, we have been doing lots of innovation around educational technology, but it often doesn't fit that type of narrative. And what that narrative often wants is to say that particularly in higher education, they're too slow moving, they don't know what they're doing, and it needs this sort of like saviour on the white horse riding in from outside of universities to tell them how to use technology. So I was trying to sort of counter that narrative, really, I think the book to sort of demonstrate there is this history of innovation throughout uh, higher education. The other real danger, and I, I have been so susceptible to this, I'm thankful to people like you leaders in this space who are helping us to think more critically. I know Audrey Waters is another person who you mentioned quite a bit. She came on to the podcast very, very early. And I feel so ill-equipped to have interviewed her at that time. <laughs> but, but we started with, what's Cassandra in reference to? And we went from there, but EdTech's Cassandra. And so we need to be thinking critically. We don't want to just get excited about the bells and whistles. And as you said, here comes the hero that's going to disrupt everything and and change education as we know it or change our experience with the internet as we know it. How do we continue to, or actually, no, let's, let's begin with how do we start to think more critically about educational technology? It's a good question because I think the other thing you want to avoid is just being too critical and too yeah. dismissive. And I think you don't want to be like, yeah, it's never going to work. We know what we're doing. Just leave us alone, kind of thing. Because you know, there is interesting stuff that happens, and I think when I was going through these twenty-five years, I sort of noticed a, a shift, really. I think, and often those early years were, were sort of marked by optimism, like we can change what we want to do with education, and it was kind of really quite liberating when people began to think, like, how can we teach effectively using the web and wikis and all these kind of things, and people coming up with new pedagogies. And now it's much more kind of concern around, you know toxic behavior on social media, privacy, the use of data, those kind of things. And I think there is a real onus on, particularly those in educational technology, to develop a, a critical perspective because a lot of this stuff is kind of vendor-driven and we, you mentioned disruption, that kind of whole kind of disruption narrative. You know, we're going to come in, unless you get on board quickly, you'll be left behind. And I think often, I don't mean to sort of uh, criticize them, but like senior managers in universities, like vice chancellors, principals, aren't sort of well-grounded in education technology and they can sort of be scared into this sort of stuff, I think. And so that you really need critical voices in the room who aren't just saying this is all nonsense, but they're asking kind of key questions like, well, how will it work? You know, how will it improve learning for our students? Other questions like who owns the data? Uh, you know, how can students opt out if they, if they need to? What are, the, what are the possible downsides? So just having that kind of catalogue of critical questions you can bring to something and asking for evidence particularly because people often come with in with bold claims we, we saw that obviously with MOOCs quite recently you know like MOOCs are going to democratize higher education they're going to like be the end of the university and this stuff just gets spouted and gets repeated but there's never any kind of evidence for how it's going to work or, or what it's going to do so I think basing stuff in actual impact for our learners is the kind of basis for that. I appreciate your reference to massive open online courses or MOOCs because 
I think they represent all of the things you just mentioned. So how exciting that I mean, I have access to take a course from the Ivy League universities and from universities all over the world. They're they're right here. And many of them are freely accessible to me unless I want some sort of verification for my employer that I took the course and completed it. And completed, we should put in air quotes, but that's hard to do in podcasting. But at the same time, we want to think critically about them, as you said, because there was this promise of, you know, down with professors, they're going to go away and be replaced by, you know, the lowly people like me that work at this teeny tiny private university is, is never going to be able to you know, live up to the promise of what MOOCs could offer. So, you know, people like me will go by the wayside. And so I think that's an example. I teach a class in educational technology, and it's primarily to educators of younger than higher education. And it feels so overwhelming because I want to give them a broad look, but I can't even dip my toe into a single topic that you've written about without the fears coming in. I, and, and then even just some real... Things that go well beyond the technology. A quick example is blogging. I yeah. do ask that they blog. I have. I used to have them blog about the topics in the class, and I found that to be less helpful than blog about something you're passionate about. That is a much better entry point. But when we started, then I have one of the first things I have them do is make an about page. And they go and they look at different people's about pages and think a little bit about their identity and also, therefore, by extension, their digital identity. And so one time I got an email, it was so beautiful from a student who said, I don't know who I am. How can I figure out who I am such that I could then express it? And I thought, oh my gosh, just how do you teach a class that feels so overwhelming that there's so much to share, but there's also so much work that has to be done on the personal level, interpersonal level as well? Yeah, that's a really good example. And I have a lot of sympathy with that student. I think I didn't know who I was. I'm still not sure I do, but when I was blogging. And I think blogging... And books, but I'll start with blogging. I think you're right to pick on those two examples. So I've been blogging since about 2006, and, and that was my sort of third attempt at blogging because I struggled to find the right voice, which is something I think your students talk about there. And I used to be the kind of blogging evangelist, like I was the person willed out to say everyone should be blogging, it's great. And I still believe a lot of that. I still believe it's kind of a really good space, and it's where a lot of the kind of sort of debate and discussion you have that, you, that almost made the reason you came into higher education was you have this kind of like informal network with people and talk about interesting things but I've also come to realize you know, that actually it's not always a safe space for everyone you know I'm I'm a white male of a certain age talking about fairly you know uncontroversial subjects it's like so my experience of blogging is quite nice but that's very different for other people you know it's like um, who might be writing about subjects from a different perspective and you know attract all sorts of different views so that's an example of how you over time have had to kind of nuance that position you know it's not just isn't it a good thing it's like well actually it occurs in this context and these are things we need to be aware about and I think that you mentioned MOOCs as a kind of almost like the the archetypal example of I think of educational technology and the sort of myth and hype and what's the reality about them I think and they really it was fascinating to live through that kind of MOOC bubble in, from 2012 and seeing that take off out of nowhere and there, there's so much in there to unpack I think really but, you know first of all you're right it's like you shouldn't knock them like in many ways. They're great. It's like, who's against free learning for millions of people? <laughs> it's not something you're going to argue against, but it does come with this whole kind of, there's lots of talk about you know, the way venture capital has sort of put money into them and what they perceive of higher education. And also they still require people to produce them uh, from universities and then who owns that copyright those and things. But also there are issues around um, sort of colonialism, you know, it's all coming from, the, they're usually coming from the West into other countries. 
and also just kind of evidence that actually they might actually benefit um, experienced learners more than inexperienced learners. So it brings up all these sort of questions. But the, the thing that really used to get me about them was in particular, you would then see people saying like, you know, MOOCs have invented online learning. <laughs> this used to drive me mad because I think just <laughs> a personal boast, like but in 99 at the Open University, I was the chair of our first major online course. And it was completely online and we had 15,000 students. Like, so it's, it's, it's slightly galling to hear in 2012 that suddenly they've invented online learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's like, and people say, like, finally, it's universities understanding the internet. You're like, oh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that was part of the motivation for writing this book, really, was kind of to counter that narrative that, you know, that we've been doing nothing all these years. That gets me to wanting to ask you about change. And, and you, it's such a wonderful book that to me felt like going on a journey. So it's kind of not a fair question. It's like whenever someone tries to ask me what my favorite episode is of teaching in higher ed, but I'm going to try it anyway. What do you think of as something that you wrote about that has radically changed in all these years that it's kind of would be hard for someone to even recognize it in its earliest iterations? I think not so much a technology, but I think some of that optimism and sort of radical thinking that was around in the late 90s when the the web first started to become popular and we had things like wikis and asynchronous learning and um, bulletin board systems. And I think people were really beginning to think like, how can we construct knowledge differently? Even the whole thing about hyperlink and it's like people talking about non-linear narratives and that. And it felt like we were going to really change the way we teach. And it wasn't really sort of about disruption. It was really sort of talking about how we can do interesting things in teaching and learning. And I think some of that optimism and almost kind of rebellious attitude has gone a lot and and sometimes it's almost become much more corporate and industrial and I think if you were to look back when I was reading through some of those papers you sort of have to go back and look at them and think oh there's some really radical ideas in here and we don't see that so much now and I think you know now and I think MOOCs are probably another good example of that it was interesting that the sort of what we call the ex-MOOC model the kind of much more broadcast model was the one that sort of became popular that's a really, you know, they're popular and they, that's good, it's fine, but they're not really a very interesting model compared to what you know, people like Stephen Downs and George Simpson's called the, the CMOOC model, which is much more kind of connectivist and about you sort of finding your own networks and establishments, which, which were really about thinking how we structure knowledge differently. You mentioned hyperlinks, and that's one of those topics that is both simple but also hard to understand if people aren't quite familiar with just how magnificent that was. Would you talk to us about information or or perhaps technology without hyperlinks? What did it look like before that became so much the norm? And then what's the promise for it even still today? Well, I think, you know, really, it's it's that we were stuck in a kind of a a text, a, you know, a book mindset. Like, so everything is, is chronological. And, and people used to try and play around with that in books. So there were some kind of experimental authors would like to kind of read any chapter in any order and those kind of things. But, but it's kind of very sort of chronological mapping. And so you, you know, you'd have a textbook and you'd sort of like start the introduction and work your way through. And hyperlinking meant you could jump out to all, all different places. And I think the point of hyperlinking, the kind of really crucial thing for higher education was what it demonstrated was you are no longer in control. So like with a textbook, you know, all right, people can, people might read it in a different order, but pretty much you've controlled what they're getting and, and the knowledge they're receiving. With hyperlinks, there's suddenly, you know, within five links, they can be somewhere completely different from where you, you know, you've intended. And I think that in some ways that gets to the real crux of the issue about what, what the web brought to education, both good and bad, was that it was a, 
a loss of control for educators. And I think in some ways we're still grappling with that, I think, in, in many ways. You also mentioned connectivism, which is another one of those topics that when you read about it, it's just hard to understand the depth that's there. And and you talk about connectivism as it connects with educational technology. Could you talk about how we were sort of forced into, not forced may not be the right choice of words here, but how did we start to become more connectivist in our teaching approaches because of some of the technologies or lack thereof? Yeah, so connectivism was uh, George Siemens and Stephen Downs talking about at the end of the 2000s. And, and they're really sort of trying to think, what does it mean to teach and learn in a networked space? Um, and so where you're connected to lots of different people, you're connected to lots of different resources, and you're pulling them together and you're synthesizing them. So it's difficult because it's not really a kind of a firm pedagogy, and, and they didn't say it was. It was kind of more of an approach to knowledge construction. But it's really sort of seeing seeing yourself as a node in a network and and the value of the network that you construct around yourself, both of resources and people, is how you construct knowledge. And Stephen Downs likes to argue that that's a more scalable model than a kind of more hierarchical model that is more traditional. Yeah, you also were talking about the bandwidth issues that were present, which sort of held us back from perhaps relying as much on video as we normally might have. I mean, that would have been sort of a, we were doing a lot more lecturing, straight lecturing without interaction, without active learning with our students at the time, let alone something like constructivism. And and then the limitations actually helped us then leapfrog into something entirely new. Yeah, I think that's true. And sometimes, you know, limitations can be strangely empowering in a way. <laughs> I still miss 140 character Twitter in a way. So it really made you have to write something very concise. and You'd have to go over and over again to get something across. And I think because of the bandwidth issues, uh, we often have to kind of come up with quite interesting ways to get people to write and construct knowledge rather than just like, I'm going to record an hour lecture and stick it out there. You know, it's like, but when you've got all that freedom, sometimes it, it means you're not quite as creative as that you know, necessity being the mother of invention, I guess. I mean. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to spend some time with four nursing faculty from the Middle East. And I haven't had this kind of experience in a very long time. None of them had ever even heard of what a podcast was, let alone wow. ever listened to one. And it yeah. was the funniest thing because I, speaking of control, I don't tend to try to take a lot of control when I'm working with faculty. It doesn't tend to pan out very well for us <laughs> when we try that. So before I knew it, they're taking their phones out. Many of them actually had phones that already had podcast apps on them without having realized that prior or even known wow. what that was. Yeah. I'm curious for you, what that you wrote about in the book, would you imagine that if people didn't know about today and then heard about it, would just have them scrambling to get their hands? What what truly is just this exciting, innovative, and the actual meaning of the word innovative uh, educational technology that still today would, would you imagine just light a room on fire with excitement about it? Do you mean if, if they didn't know about it already? Yes, if they didn't yeah. already know about it, yeah. I mean, I think... If you didn't know about the web, then just been able to. I mean, I, I used to run, so at the Open University, we used to do summer schools, don't do this much now. But so every summer we'd go away like for two weeks, and, and I used to run a, a workshop on IT. And what we do is get people to publish a web page. And this was like, you know, they'd handcraft it in HTML and they hadn't seen it before. And it was still was a kind of marvelous moment when they published their page and they're sort of looking at it and they're going, okay, it's interesting. And then I tell them, anyone in the world can see this page now. And they'd get one of their friends to look at it. And that was like a kind of wow moment for a lot of people, kind of really 
magical thing to suddenly realise I can publish this thing, other people would see it. So I, still, I think I still think that's pretty amazing, but I think most people know about that. And I still think, although it kind of comes with lots of baggage now, I still think YouTube and video is pretty amazing. Actually, You've been able to record, you know, the whole anyone can be a broadcaster thing. And that comes with, the problem with that is that it means anybody can be a broadcaster. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes you don't want to be a broadcaster. But that's, that, I think that's still pretty amazing. And I think, I, I make the point in the book, I think, that I don't think we've really grappled with video enough in terms of higher education, in terms of using it innovatively for assessment, for example. So I still think there's a lot there for us to explore. It's still quite a, a text-based mindset, I think. Yeah, and I think sometimes I'm I'm wanting to use it more and yet I'm also trying to use these skills of thinking critically about it, recognizing that just because I have the latest iPhone doesn't mean that my students do. And so much of the time, well, it's gone to now 100% of my students, regardless of socioeconomic status, do own a smartphone these days. But that smartphone may not have the storage capacity to install another app that I think is going to be great for their learning. They may not have access to high-speed internet at home. And especially when you start talking about video, those are large file sizes. And they are even talking about not fitting their photos on. Have you any ideas around how we can overcome that? I mean, do we need to stop thinking about their smartphones as a a method for this and and try to get them to a more democratizing kind of technology to to construct them? I mean, I think... It's like all these things that when we first started teaching online, a lot of the reservations were baiting and not everyone's got dial-up and not got, got, got a sufficient computer. And you're always slightly ahead. But I think you, it, you're almost at the stage now where you can think most people have those things. And for some people who don't have you know, storage might be an issue, then maybe there are kind of upload options or, or you can use things. So you can find some workarounds. But I think it's always slightly worrying just to kind of operate at the assumption that, you know, the person with actually the worst kit because that's so much other kit around it. If, if you can say something, if you've really got nothing, then we can loan you the, these bits. And so, so I think we shouldn't let that quite be the barrier. And, and usually there are some, some workarounds you can get through these things. Yeah. I'm even thinking as you're sharing that, even just live video, which is not something that I've experimented mm-hmm. with so much. In fact, I, I shared about a poster session that was quite unlike most poster sessions, it was held outdoors. And I think of it more as like a carnival. But I had a student be a host of a Facebook Live event. And that was my last dipping my toe into that because I had my lock orientation on the phone set. And so if you're going to watch the video, (laughs) you have to have your head turned to its side the entire time. So um, but but I mean, live video is something I should experiment with more because now so much of social media is shifting over to whether it's Instagram stories or just just the it's a lot more here and now than I think I have the skills for or even the mindset for and that those are skills that we should be helping our students develop in this like almost whatever job they're going into that you know they might well have to do that kind of yeah let's talk a little bit about social media what what were some of the things that you had to celebrate and also some of the critical thinking you had around social media yeah, again, it's the, the the old optimism pessimism story. <laughs> but I think, and, and again, I think it helps having sort of lived through this because I think you sort of take it for granted now. But it's good to kind of remember when it wasn't like that. So one of the great things was you know, when I sort of first became a blogger and then made social media, Twitter, and things was the kind of network of connections you make as an academic. You know, I used to joke that you know previously, in order to kind of keep that network going, you'd have to be on the kind of conference circuit, meeting up these people. But but now, like you can. I've had conversations with people in Canada and Australia and the US, like all before breakfast, you know, it's like, and you kind of keep this network of connections going. 
And a lot of those people who I got to know through blogging and then later Twitter have become, you know, proper friends in, in, in the sense of, and sometimes I've met them face to face, but not always, but also really useful kind of like academic contact. So I think all that kind of building up of that academic network is, is really useful and it's still really valid. I, I give a talk sometimes about the, the paradoxes of social media. And I think one of them is you have to understand that opposing things are, are true simultaneously in social media. So another thing is that it, it, both, it is a democratising space in many ways. And I've seen this a lot, for example, with the keynote people we get at conferences. They're not necessarily professors with you know a massive research publication record. They're people who are interesting on Twitter and, and have interesting things to say. And that does sort of open up, I think, to a, a lot more people. But at the same time, it's true that groups who are marginalised in society are even more marginalised and, and persecuted online. So, so both of those things are true simultaneously. And that's quite difficult to, to sort of get your head around, I think. And, and I think in terms of the negative, we, you know, we, we've seen how it's sort of, to use the term, it, it's become weaponised in many ways. And, and we thought, you know, it'd be, wouldn't it be great once everyone can sort of chat freely online? But it's difficult, I think, to understand just how much that can be used against you. And how If, if people want to be cynical and use data like it's very difficult to combat that. And I think as human beings, almost, we haven't developed the skills to kind of deal with that influx of information that's kind of continual. And, you know, if you're someone whose Facebook feed is um, populated by fake stories or whatever, then you start to think that that is the norm if you haven't got any kind of contrary to that. So I think it's quite a dangerous position for, for us to be in because people can be completely isolated in these worlds and think that that is a reality in terms of and they don't then don't aren't connected with other people and what we so we don't even have a, a kind of shared concept of reality or values anymore for higher education i think part of our role is to is to combat that but also to understand how we we operate within that environment because lots of people now see higher education and you know expertise as, as almost like as bad things and that's a very strange position to be in for society the other day i saw a man who had talked about that he has started going to therapy for dealing with the racism he encounters on a daily basis. And it was one of the things where I just thought that I, through social media, get to see others' lived experiences that are so different than mine without asking them to educate me. Because someone was like, it's not your job to educate me what it's like to live. And so there's people who have written wonderful books that help do that, and then social media as well. But like you said, I live such a different experience online. I don't tend to write about controversial things. And if I do, it's like thinking that people should have access to healthcare is one I can remember on Facebook that got some people riled up, which I think I'll fight that all day. <laughs> it's silly yeah. me for thinking children of this world should get to go to the doctor when they're sick. Craziness, I know, but... You, but, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that, that was a controversy. No, <laughs> no, but for the most part, I mean, people that are really advocating, I'm thinking about people I've started to follow from disability access and accessibility advocates, that they can write one thing and then all of a sudden... I, just the vitriol that comes and just absolute disgusting. But I'm even learning from that of like them asking, hey, could you help look through this thread? I can't do it anymore. And and block some of these people for me and yeah. seeing the groups come together and try to support and, and learning what that even looks like. Yeah, I think for all of us, we're all going to need to develop very good social media strategies, whether that's complete avoidance or partial avoidance or things like when to mute, when to block, you know, what societies you build up, you know. Uh, who to engage with and, and how to cope with those things because you know, I'm like you I don't get a lot of it but occasionally you get it and it's 
I'm not going to deal with it. I don't know how some people deal with it. You know, it's like you get this stuff, you know, on a kind of really regular, much more vicious basis. It would just like, you know, completely paralyze me. I think it's, yeah, so, so they do have my admiration when they do it. But I think we're just at the beginning of this really being able to be connected to everyone in the world all the time. It's like, it's, like, it's going to take a few years, I think, if not generations to kind of work through. Yeah, I think about us in the United States and how much we have learned, we can only hope, about social media and the the downside, the underbelly of it, if you will. I laugh because I started blocking people on Twitter, anyone who had a, a name that was letters, but then followed by a whole bunch of numbers. Yeah, I assumed yeah, every single one of those people <laughs> was a troll because that's a, that's a common sign, right, of a troll would have yeah. lots of numbers. But I also found out that's the default setting of a new account on Twitter. So I, it only happened that I discovered my error when someone who does actually our show notes and some of the podcast production for us had just signed up for a professional account for a class she was taking as right. part of her master's degree. And so I saw her name and I was thinking, well, she's certainly not a troll. What is going on? And she said, oh, no, that's the default. And I go, oh, my gosh, I must have blocked like 10 people for absolutely no reason. <laughs> it is hard to learn the rules. That is for sure. It's yeah, hard to sure. learn how to be helpful in, in these spaces. And it's changing as well all the time. So it's not like it's a, once you've learned them, that's it. You know, this stuff develops. Yes. Well, here's another unfair question for you, because I'm realizing we're running out of time for the main part of our interview. I just want to open it up to you. What have we not talked about? That is, when we go back to listen, we're going to go, ah, she didn't ask me about this. <laughs> what else should we talk about before we move on to the recommendation segment? Well, first of all, I should say when the book's coming out. So the book should be out in spring 2020, coming out with from uh, Athabasca Press. So it'll be freely available online and uh, Creative Commons license. So thank you to them. I guess the thing, I sort of touched upon it, but I, perhaps the, the motivations for writing the book, we sort of touched upon them, I think. But one was to counter that narrative of, you know, the hero riding in. But I also think, having worked in education technology for quite a long time, I think it's it's interesting that it's the sort of field that people move into from elsewhere, you know, it's like, which is one of its delights in a way. It's not a, it's not a discipline that you go and study. You know. If you go to a chemistry conference, then... Most people will have studied chemistry, whereas if you go to an educational technology conference, you might be talking to someone who studied philosophy, someone who studied psychology, someone who studied arts, all sorts of things. And that's useful, but one of the downsides to that is that we don't have a kind of shared history or a kind of shared understanding of lots of things. So I wanted to write a book which gave at least some basis for that shared understanding. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's the book, but I think kind of provide a means to think about uh, that kind of shared understanding that we have. And also, I think, as we've gone through this kind of 25-year period, I wanted to kind of then try and draw out some themes that I think will be important when we think about where we go next, in a way. And, and I think, lastly, just to kind of highlight the good work that's happened, I think, in higher education and, and the stuff that we have done. Well, I can say absolutely in the affirmative that you have accomplished all of those things. It was absolutely a delight to read your book. I'm honored I got to read it before the spring. I would not have wanted to wait. But also, I should note that you do have all these blog posts that people can begin to consume some of this and start to have the dialogue on social media and, and, and you know, wrestle with some of these things themselves. Thank you for this wonderful work. And you do mention that there really isn't a lot around the history of educational technology. And I know Audrey Waters is working on a, a book and you had seen a, was it a list of books that she had? It was just like, there's yeah. it's just a very small list. It might fit in the smaller version of Twitter characters that you were yeah, referring to. So, so Audrey asked, um, has anyone got any recommendations for history of their tech books? And she sort of gave the ones that she had. And it was, it was just kind of one of those moments thinking, 
actually, yeah, I can't think of many more. You know, it's like it, you might find a chapter in a book or sometimes people are sort of reviewing where they got to now. But often there's not many books kind of just dedicated to the history of EdTech. So that's indicated that, that maybe there was a, a need for it. One more thing I'd like to share too about my own experience. I did say that so much of this, I got to watch these changes take place firsthand. And that, that's just remarkable to me. But at the same time, it's a very accessible read. So even if you weren't familiar, there were a couple of them that I was not familiar with. And it's just right there for you to understand what is it? What was its impact? And there's not a lot of the expression that we use. I don't know if this will translate to the UK, but inside baseball, like I don't have to know a lot in yeah. order to understand what you're talking about. This is not a difficult to read book, even if you're not as familiar with educational technology. It's really brilliant. Thank you. It's a, it's a book you can dip in and out of, I think, you know, Absolutely. you could read a chapter here and there, I guess. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. I have one that popped up while you were talking because you were saying the people that will just assume that a hero wrote in and they invented something and, and yeah. that it's usually a white man who, who has accomplished yeah. this massive feat. And that was actually a plot line for a very funny British comedy called The IT Crowd. And I'm yeah, reading yeah. from the Internet Movie Database, The Comedic advent- Misadventures of Roy, Moss, and their grifting supervisor, <laughs> Jen, a ragtag team of IT support workers at a large corporation headed by a hot-headed yuppie. And I, I thought maybe I had recommended it because I watched this many, many moons ago. And for sure, I, I mean, at least it doesn't show up on my search engine <laughs> on my website. I don't think I've recommended it. So if you enjoy the topic of this kind of, I guess you'd say it's like, like the humor of the office, but uh, done with technology. Yeah. It's just so funny. Just so, so, so very funny. But they do have a plot line in one of the episodes that, you know, has to do with who invented the internet and them sort of yanking the chain of the person that they report to, who somehow got her job with zero IT experience, but just talked her way into it. So yeah. that's my first recommendation. And then the second one on a totally different space is a book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's by David Epstein. I did not know of his work before this other than he is celebrated for being an incredible researcher. And so some of you might have heard of the 10,000-hour rule. That was a Malcolm Gladwell thing where um, people criticized him because he'd say, oh, you do 10,000 hours and you become an expert, but that some of the people he celebrates in that, like Bill Gates, he didn't account for the role that luck played or that one's family fortunes may have played. And, and so he's criticized a little bit. And then also he had said in a podcast, I heard this, that this is Gladwell. He researches the things that agree with what he says, essentially. <laughs> and so the, this guy, David Epstein, is known for being the opposite of that. So he's arguing the opposite. He says he enjoys the intellectual banter with Gladwell, that both of these ideas are important. Not that we should never be specialized, but David Epstein talks a lot about the downside to an overemphasis on specialization. And so he looks at all of the benefits if we do more interdisciplinary work, if we are looking for evidence of why our idea wouldn't work or why it isn't true. And I I mean, there's so many examples. He goes in education, he goes into music, sports, 
business. I mean, he talk about range. His, his book lives up to that name. It was an absolute delightful read and one that I'm definitely going to have to go revisit because there's so many important points that um, I think he makes in it and challenges me just to continue to be the learner that I am and to risk going and getting to talk to people like you, Martin, who are experts in their fields, but that that we can sometimes add to the conversation even more with a beginner's mind. So those are my two recommendations for today. And Martin, I'll pass it over to you for yours. Excellent. Well, first of all, just I'll back up your recommendation. So the IT crowd is, is excellent and really funny. I haven't read that book, but it's on my list to read because my other role at the Open University is I'm the chair of the Open program. And what that is, is our multidisciplinary program. So students can study any options they want, any modules they want across the the university. So they can study music one year and computer science the next year kind of modules. And we've always done that. But I think it's almost like if we didn't have it, we'd reinvent it now, particularly for the the point that he makes in that book, which is, you know, in order to solve the, the complex problems of the world, you need people to understand across a range of disciplines. You need specialism as well, but also need these kind of people on cynical. So, so that sounds really good. Thank you for that. I guess my recommendations would be, one would be, if people don't know already, Mike Caulfield's blog and the book he wrote on sort of uh, what he calls the four moves. So sort of checking misinformation, disinformation. And that's a really useful process to go through. And Mike's got really, those are really good fun examples he, he does on Twitter as well. And as I mentioned that towards the end of the book, I think that's one way of trying to deal with the sort of the dystopia we find ourselves in. So I think that that's a kind of really useful approach. Another one I'd say, just because I've been thinking about my end of year book review thing that I do usually every year. So it's not an, an ed tech book, but I've read a lot of really excellent books this year. There's a lot of kind of really good uh, feminist science writers around. So I think most people might have read Caroline Criado Perez's uh, Invisible Women about sort of uh, bias uh, in data. Um, and if you haven't read that one, I certainly do recommend that. But another one that I would really recommend is, as I was saying, is Inferior and how, how Science Got Women Wrong. That's a really good understanding of the things that science got wrong about women and then how you use science to kind of uh, to demonstrate it. And I think there's a lot for us to just learn in education also to kind of think about those things. So that, those would be my two recommendations. I have not heard of either of those books, and that sounds oh, right up my alley. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So oh, certainly... Grado Perez's book, I think, for more applicable to EdTech. But Andrew Sainz is just really well written. Thank you so much for all three of these recommendations. I did, I'll link in the show notes, Mike Caulfield also recently put out some openly licensed modules that you can have students go through in order to learn more about evaluating news sources. And he's been doing these really fun videos where he walks through how he does yeah. this. And it's it's kind of, for me, what's been the missing piece. I feel like I really struggle with trying to be at all adequate for providing my students with this. And I feel like that was just the missing thing. I've got now some modules I could assign, but then I've got his expertise and kind of getting to watch behind the scenes of how he would handle. And he does it, in some cases, he says, without knowing in advance what he's going to do. He just Because he wants it to be cold for him, just like it'll be cold for us when we go through it. That's no, a really excellent model, and, he, and he's very articulate and funny and you know, works for him really well. Speaking of getting to meet people in person, I had an opportunity to meet you this year at Open Ed, and what a, what a pleasure that was. I've just admired your work for so long. Martin, it's such an honor to get to talk to you today. Thanks for being a guest on Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been great. What a pleasure it's been today to have this opportunity to speak with Martin Weller. It was like a little bit of time travel. I loved reading his book. I hope you'll pick it up. 
25 years of ed tech. Depending on when you listen, it might be a pre-order or perhaps it will already be out. Thanks so much to all of you for listening and to being a part of the teaching in higher ed community. You are one of the things that fuels me to keep going on the hard days and the joyous days and everything in between. If you'd like to stay connected with Teaching in Higher Ed, I do send out a weekly email where the show notes from the most recent email go out, as well as a blog post written by me, either about teaching or productivity. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.